like you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One thing that's very apparent in the ministry of Paul is that he taught salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works, apart from keeping the law. It's all God's grace. I love how he says it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And not only did he teach that we are saved by grace, but he also taught that we are kept by grace. Romans 5, 2 says, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our salvation depends totally on what Christ has done, and our security depends totally on what Christ is doing. We are saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. You say, well, what happens when a Christian sins? Does he lose his salvation? No. We are under grace. And when we as Christians sin, God forgives. That's what grace is all about. If you didn't sin, you wouldn't need grace. The Bible says we're saved by grace. We have redemption by grace. We are forgiven by grace. We stand in grace. We're dealt with according to the riches of God's grace. We always have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We possess the spirit of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, when we pray, we come to the throne of grace. And what do we get? Grace to help in time of need. And so it's grace, grace, grace. And there's a lot of opposition to that message because the natural mind thinks that the way to get to God is to work your way there. And there was opposition in Paul's day. The Judaizers said, you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. And so Paul was constantly proclaiming them to be wrong. Romans 3.20 says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 6.14 says, for you are not under law, but under grace. And even when we sin as Christians, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, no one. We are saved and we are kept by God's grace. Now the Corinthians took this idea that Paul taught so readily and they kind of ran with it. They kind of make it, made it their theological argument for sin. And apparently, when Paul taught, he emphasized grace so much that he had a saying that he often said, and we see it at the beginning of verse 12, and that is, all things are lawful unto me. Well, the Corinthians picked up on this saying that Paul often said, and they kind of made it their slogan. They made it their motto. Since it's all forgiven, let's just do whatever we want. They sort of took the attitude of Romans chapters 5 and 6, where Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
And their logic was, well, if God enjoys forgiving sin, well, let's just give him a lot to enjoy. So since, since grace increases, when sin increases, we'll sin a lot and grace will cover it. And, of course, the area of sin that they particularly honed in on was the area of sexual immorality. Now, all the problems in the church at Corinth were simply problems that they brought in from their former way of life. They had a problem with divisions. That's because they held on to human wisdom and exalted human teachers. They had a problem with tolerance of sin. They didn't discipline sin, and that was the mentality that they had before they were saved. They had a problem with suing one another, and they brought that in from their mentality, from their former way of life. And the fourth problem that he deals with in the book of Corinthians is right here in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and that's the problem of immorality. Again, a problem that they brought in to the church from their former way of life and from the commonality that it had in the city of Corinth. And not only did they commit immorality, but they attempted to justify it. And they had two arguments. Their first was the theological argument in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Since I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven, I might as well just do whatever I want to. That was their theological argument. And secondly, they had a philosophical argument for sin, and you see that at the beginning of verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. They would sin up a storm, and when someone asked them why, they'd say, well, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. It's just a biological thing. Then they took it a step further and said, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. Just like eating, you go out to eat, you pick something on the menu, doesn't matter what you pick, what you choose, what you eat. It's just a biological thing. It's the same with sexual intercourse. It's just a biological thing. It doesn't really have any moral implications. That was their philosophical argument. It's amoral. Now, do people still rationalize that way? You ever hear people say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want to? That's the theological argument. And then the philosophical argument you hear everywhere in our culture today, it's just a biological thing. When I get hungry, I eat. When I get tired, I sleep. When I have sexual drives, I fulfill those. Just a biological thing. I heard someone recently say that sexual intercourse is just a sport. It's just something that people do, and it's really isolated from any moral implications. It's just an activity in and of itself. That's the mentality in the culture we live today. And so Paul writes this passage to confront that worldly way of thinking. And in this passage, he's going to tell us the truth about sexual immorality. He's going to give us three reasons why sexual sin must be excluded from the Christian's life. And I've listed those in your bulletin. The three reasons are it will deceive you, it will dominate you, and it will deform you. First of all, it will deceive you. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. While it's true that you may be able to do something and get forgiven, it's not profitable. It's not beneficial. They will harm you. If you sin, yes, God will forgive, 
but there is a price to pay, and that price is high. In fact, I would say that there is no other sin that has built into it the deep-rooted damage that the sin of sexual immorality does. No sin harms you quite like this sin. But it's not advertised that way. In fact, I want you to just take your Bible and go back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. The Bible warns us way back in Proverbs about this. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 3. says, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. She talks smooth, and like a honeycomb, honey just drips from her lips. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. What you see is not what you get. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. She is not on the path of life. She is tottering on the edge of destruction, and she doesn't even know it. Look at verse 7. Now then, my son, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't even go near the door of her house. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. If you follow this path, you will grow old and when you are older you will regret the fact that you live that life when your body is deteriorating. And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have been a fool. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. And then look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Your cistern and your well is your wife. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her Love And that word exhilarated means intoxicated. Let me tell you something. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He created sexual intercourse. He wants it to be satisfying. He says, be intoxicated with your wife's love. But don't be deceived in going outside of that marriage bond because if you do, you will experience destruction. And then look at verse 20. 
For why should you, my son, be exhilarated or intoxicated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Look at chapter 6. In verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. You think food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food. You go out and find an adulteress and you will be reduced to a loaf of bread. Verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not get burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Chapter 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. There are a lot of them out there. Passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. What's interesting is the institution of prostitution hasn't changed much over the years. She was on the corner when Proverbs was written, and she's still on the corner. Verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. She's on the corner when? At night. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. There she is, on the corner, in the dark, dressed like a harlot. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks on every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Now he switches from a prostitute to a married lady who is enticing you. She says, I've taken care of my religious obligations. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Sounds great, doesn't it? Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Verse 22, suddenly he follows. Like a lover to be loved. No. No like an ox to the slaughter. 
like a wise man who knows what he's doing, like a player who's in control of his life. No, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. When you do it, you're like an ox going to the slaughter, and you're like a fool in chains. And then verse 23 adds, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. You're like a bird going into a trap. Listen, it may be very enticing, but when you fall for this temptation, you are a fool because it harms, it tears, it destroys. You are throwing away your life. Look at Proverbs 9. Verse 13, the woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, i.e. stupid, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It may taste sweet for a moment, but the reality is that it is the path of death. Ask David if it paid to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Yes, God forgave him, but he lost his infant son. His family lived in chaos for the rest of his days, and he experienced sorrow and regret. In Psalm 51, he said, my sin is ever before me. There is always a price to pay. Sexual sin will deceive you. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First of all, it will deceive you. Secondly, it will dominate you. Look at the rest of verse 12. Paul repeats this saying, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, when you are mastered, that means you have a master. Sexual sin is a master. It will make you its slave. Interestingly, today, so many people call it sexual freedom. It's not freedom at all. It is slavery. It promises to satisfy, but it never does. It enslaves you. And as a Christian, I'm to be in control of my body. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. This is your vessel, 
and you are to possess it. You are to control it. Because you can see, you can get to the point where you are out of control and you are victimized and dominated by your own desires. Later in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, I discipline my body. The word used there is I bruise my body. I, I give myself a black eye just to keep myself in control. Why? Because he says, lest when I have taught others, I become a castaway. Even as a preacher, Paul says, it could happen to me. And I have to be in control because sin is progressive and sin enslaves. In the very first psalm, it says this, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Interesting progression. If you walk in the paths of sinners, pretty soon you will find yourself standing in the paths of sinners. And before long, guess what? You're sitting in that spot. That's the progression of sin. You walk that way, you stand and take a look, and pretty soon you're sitting in their midst. You're involved in the sin. Sin is progressive. James 1 says, lust conceives. It gives birth. Lust gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. That's the progression. LSD. Lust, sin, death. That's the way it is. It's progressive. That's why 2 Timothy 3.13 says, In the last days, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Why? Because sin always is progressive. It gets worse and worse and worse. And we have to be in control of our bodies because sin will enslave them. Jesus said in John 8.34, everyone who commits sin becomes the slave of sin. That's the way it works. So sexual sin deceives you dominates you, and thirdly, it will deform you. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. You can't say... Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. Because both food and the stomach, or the word literally used here is belly, which in the Bible is talking about your appetite, your desires. He's saying food and your desire for food is going to be done away with. It's going to be destroyed. But your body is different. Your body is not a temporal commodity. And to show us that, notice what he says in verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. If you are a Christian, you are destined for resurrection. 
your body, even if your body dies and deteriorates, your body is going to be raised one day, which tells me that the actions that take place in your body carry more weight than the decision you're going to make today on what you're going to have for lunch. Your moral decisions carry more weight than a corned beef sandwich. And when you treat your body as if it's temporal, when you place sexual intimacy and your choice of food on the same plane, you are perverting God's purpose for your body. You say, well, what is God's purpose for my body? Well, Paul points out three purposes in the remainder of this passage that I want you to see. Three purposes for your body. Number one, he tells us it's for the Lord. Look at the end of verse 13 again. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Food is for the belly, yes, but the body is not for immorality. It's for the Lord. And you as a Christian are to be giving your body to the Lord, as it says in Romans chapter 12, as a living sacrifice to him. Your body is for the Lord. So how could you pervert that purpose by using your body for immorality? That's his first point. Second purpose, your body is one with Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? When you're saved, your body becomes part of Christ. We talk about that that all the time. We say we are the body of Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. And so we are members of his body. And then notice what he says in the rest of verse 15. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? You as a believer are part of the body of Christ. So in essence, when you commit immorality, you are taking Christ and joining Christ to a prostitute. How's that sound? Paul says, shall you do that? And then his answer is the strongest negative you can find anywhere in Scripture at the end of verse 15. It's even hard to translate. May it never be. And then verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. A quote from Genesis chapter 2. Eating is a biological function. Sexual intercourse is a spiritual union. It is the joining of two people together. That's why in the Old Testament, when two single people committed sexual sin, they were to marry because there was a union that was established. That's why adultery is grounds for divorce because you have consummated a spiritual union outside of your marriage bond. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, said every time a man and woman enter into a sexual relationship, A spiritual bond is established between them which must be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Hmm. 
Sexual intercourse joins two people in the deepest, most intimate manner. They are one flesh. And then verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And again, he's telling us, how could you do that outside of marriage when you are one with Christ? You see, you're not only breaking the vow you made to your wife in that you are united to her, you are breaking your unity with Jesus Christ when you do that. And so the application in verse 18, flee immorality. How do you deal with immorality? You run. You get out of there. You don't flirt with immorality. You don't rationalize with immorality because when you do, you will lose. You run from immorality. You do what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife came up and said, you big hunk of a man, he said, I'm out of here. And left it. He didn't talk to her. He didn't try to rationalize. He left his coat behind. He ran so hard. This is the one sin in Scripture where the, where the, the way you respond is always the same. You flee immorality. You don't stay around. And then look at the rest of verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. That's difficult to understand, and I really wish Paul had elaborated a little more on what he means here. But I think in the context, he's talking about the fact that a sexual union joins two people together. So I think what he's telling us is when, when you commit sexual sin, it's not just a sin against somebody else. You are sinning against yourself because you are robbing yourself of the beauty of that union that God has established. You are giving something away that you can't ever get back. And so he says, it's not like other sins. It's not just a sin that you commit and you're forgiven and everything's okay. You have sinned against your own body. Something changes when you do that. And the cost is great. And then the third purpose of your body is that it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to cover this quickly this morning, and then I want to come back to this next time, because this is too good of a passage, these last two verses, we're going to deal with them again. But notice what he says in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Do you know that your body doesn't belong to you? We, we sure act like it does. When we take care of it, we get in the mirror and, you know, kind of make sure our body, we say, well, I, you know, we, we walk in our body, we go in our body, we, we seem to take ownership of our body, but this verse reminds us we don't own our body. Somebody else owns our body. Who owns our body? God does. And what was the price for buying your body? 1 Peter 1.19 says it wasn't gold or silver, it was the precious blood of Christ. 
You have been created by God, which really means you belong to him to begin with, but on top of that, he has bought you with the blood of Christ. And so you're not your own. And not only has he bought you, but he has taken possession of you. Because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you if you're a believer, and he tells us here, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine somebody coming into this building? We, we sometimes call it a sanctuary. It's not a sanctuary. It's a building. But can you imagine someone coming into this building in the middle of the week and committing an act of immorality in this room? You say, well, that's disgusting. You've got to be kidding. Well, when you commit a sexual sin, when no one else is around and no one else knows, you have defiled the temple of God. Because this is not the temple of God. You are, and I am, and we are. What's the purpose for your body? Look at the last phrase in verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Your purpose that you deform when you commit sexual sin is that you would glorify God. That's your purpose. He owns you. Your purpose is to glorify him, to praise him, to honor him, to exalt him in everything you say and in everything you do. So the question is, how could you defile yourself by sexual sin. Oh yeah, God will forgive. But it will deceive you, it will dominate you, and it will deform you from what God intended you to be. You belong to the Lord, you are one with him, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you ought to be glorifying God in your body. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the practical nature of this passage that addresses an area that is so prevalent in our society and unfortunately so prevalent within the church. Father, I pray today that we would hear your voice. That we would hear your heart. That we would see sexual immorality the way you see it. And that we would truly be people who are different in this world. And that from this day forward, we would be people who truly glorify you, not just in our words, not just in our intentions, but in our bodies, in our actions, in our behavior, in our lifestyle. That's our prayer today, and we ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.